The perfect crime doesn't exist. The perfect getaway. Well, that's another story. <laughs> good job, Scott. <laughs> Thank you. I'm good with so, reading taglines. I know. Very good you, with you, this. you got a, a particular talent, uh, but just for taglines. Yeah. Just for taglines. <laughs> just for anything taglines. else. Anything else coming out of my mouth, you don't want to hear. So that's a tagline for this uh, book called Billy Summers. I don't know if you guys have heard of it or the author is a guy named Stephen King. We are breaking new ground here at the King cast in terms of our ad copy in that somebody somewhere decided it would be a good idea to place an ad for a Stephen King book, a brand new Stephen King book on our show. We are reading our way through Billy Summers as we speak. You're going to get a whole episode about that in the next couple of weeks on the Patreon. Full spoilers, too. Uh, so do go out there and and read it. Uh, not that I imagine we're going to have to twist anyone's arm about that. But yeah, it's going to be like a little mini book club. We all get a new Stephen King book. They've hired us to tell you about it. And we're we're going to talk about it on the show. Very exciting stuff. Yep. Billy Summers is out right now. You can buy it wherever you buy books. You can get an e-copy. You can get a physical copy, like a real Stephen King collection. I mean, everybody, we get pictures mm-hmm. all the time of Stephen King collections. Nobody who's like super hardcore into Stephen King is going to be satisfied just having a, a digital file, no matter how convenient it is. You need to take up the bookshelf space. So go out and buy physical a physical media. copy of this book. Yeah. Yes. Totally agree. And oh, and here's one, here's one more tagline. Billy Summers is here, a thrilling new novel about a good guy and a bad job from legendary storyteller Stephen King. Never heard of him. And before we wrap up, we do need to point out, once again, it's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. And I would like to point out, you're going to be seeing a a little bit more of a a KingCast presence in Fangoria magazine. So uh, you definitely want to get in on this before the next one comes out. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Red rum! Red rum! Red rum! see a dead body. Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today we are going to be talking about some rodents of unusual size with an actor, comic book creator, and all-around crazy nice guy. You'll know our guest as somewhat of a cornerstone of comic book movies, having appeared in some of the best in the genre, from playing one of the Joker's devoted followers in The Dark Knight, to the lovable Baba Yaga-obsessed Kurt in the Ant-Man films. Uh, Our guest has also turned in memorable performances in films like Prisoners, Blade Runner 2049, All Creatures Here Below, animals and you can next see him in two of our most anticipated films on the horizon dune and the suicide squad he's also the creator of the super rad comic book count crowley reluctant midnight monster hunter ladies and gentlemen please welcome david desmulchin to the kingcast stage 
Hi, thank you guys for having me, and thank you for that awesome introduction. Uh, that, that I wish I could always be introduced to people like that. That's really nice. Thank you. You're very welcome. Did I forget? Did I leave anything out that you're like? How come nobody ever talks about this? <laughs> no, I appreciate that you gave a shout out to animals and all creatures here below because those are two films that I made on my own. Uh, I mean, with 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 friends, but you know what I mean. Those are smaller films that I'm very proud of. So, and the Count Crowley shout out means a lot to me because that's. Of all the things I've done as a storyteller, um, definitely an achievement that kind of uh, is an amalgam of all the things I ever wanted to do with storytelling. And so when I get a chance to give it a shout out on something as awesome as the King cast, that's pretty rad. So thank you. And um, But no, thank you. So just come over every morning. And when my kids are not wanting to come down <laughs> for breakfast, if you could be like, your dad is the creator of the comic book. <laughs> thank you. Show yeah, some respect to your father. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I should also say that you have like the most adorable family like in the world. Uh, uh, my only time that I've run into them like with you, you know, because I've met you and Eve, you know, multiple times. We we share a lot of uh, a similar friend circle. But when I met, I met your kids, we it was at that uh, uh, it was at a protest in downtown LA. We we were all together, and you had brought them brought them uh, yes. uh, all out and uh and like they just holding up like little like anti-gun signs and stuff i'm just like <laughs> yeah it's like this is the most like the cutest thing that i could ever ever imagine so so well, thank you, you. You've got, i'm like, very proud of i'm very proud of my, my my kids um and they're little monster kids which makes me so proud my daughter's three and she is more monster tolerant than my son who is zombie obsessed right now thanks to this really wonderful series called um last kids on earth and he um he and my daughter uh thankfully indulge my horror as does my wife who's a got a very dark streak of uh you know she's not the horror hound but she's got an artistic aesthetic that is um right in line with my own so i'm very blessed and thank you for um for saying that i'm I'm so grateful to have the family i got well eve's got the uh the serial killer stuff like i remember geeking out with her uh and our mutual friend kayla like we're uh uh, you know, Aaron and Kayla, they, yeah. they you know, Kay- Kayla's a huge, my favorite murder fan. And like, and when she found out Eve was a murderino as well, <laughs> like, yes. like, like we were just all in like, well, what about this episode when they talked about this, you know, decapitated woman found or whatever. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that's the kind of conversations that, that tend to happen around. Yeah. Uh, people, people think, like people think I'm the dark one of the family. And then they, when they get to secretly know Eve, you know, it's like, Oh my God. But yeah, she, um, she loves serial killer stories and, and she knows. So she's taught me more guys. I, this is hard to believe, but she's taught me more about Aleister Crowley than I knew myself. I, I, thought, of my, I thought of myself as a kind of, you know, I, I like to think of myself as an authority on characters and individuals like that throughout history. And Eve is like schooling me. So there you go. He was always up to some hijinks that Aleister. <sighs> Man, Just what a, a great movie that would make. Wouldn't that make a great movie, the Alistair <laughs> oh, Crowley yeah. story? We got to get Yarvo to make the Alistair Crowley film. <laughs> I feel like he would just go there in a way that most filmmakers would be afraid to. <laughs> well, when, you, when you're born with a name like Alistair Crowley, you're not going to be like a, an accountant or something. A middle manager at, at a Chili's. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's like Rasputin. Of course you're going to be that guy. You know, you we, just can't. We Not- named the baby Alistair Crowley, so he will come out of my wife wearing a black robe. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of questions, or a couple of observations and, and a question for you, Dave, about right. your uh, your filmography. Uh, first of all, I did not realize The Dark Knight was your first film. That's fucking nuts. So you landed your first film 
role and it's in a Christopher Nolan and perhaps the biggest Christopher Nolan movie, you know, in terms of societal pop culture impacts. Well, I think I like to always point out to people who are listening that, first of all, you know, I was a I am a lifelong um, comic book collector and and always been obsessed with the, the clown prince of crime, but also Batman himself. And I went through a journey that was very difficult where I had to. I struggled with addiction and mental health issues, and I spent about five years of my life putting my entire acting dreams and storytelling dreams on hold to get clean and sober, to get the help that I needed, to get the mental health that I needed to deal with um, some of the psychiatric issues I was struggling with. And at that time, I had put all of my dreams and everything on on hold in a way that I knew that just taking care of myself was the thing that mattered. And it was a miracle that I that I had that awakening because uh, um, I don't know why I got that, but if you're listening and you and you feel like you know, hopeless, trust me, you just, you, you give yourself that time and allow it. It took me five years. And then I was working jobs that I really didn't like, but I was able to just read and go to the movies and study. And then, and then I got cast and finally got back into acting at some Chicago theater. And then I got this audition opportunity to audition for one of the clown um, bank heist crew at the beginning of the dark night. When I didn't get that role, I was devastated because I felt like that had been my big shot at you know, getting my, my dream of working in film. And it was a, it was a Batman movie, a Christopher Nolan movie. I was like, how could there not have been a more perfect job for me to have? And I was really disappointed, but I, I moved on and, and I was so grateful to just like go down to sets and take pictures like a fanboy from the barricades. And for four months, I never heard from them. And then apparently whatever I did in that, that clown heist audition, Nolan liked it. And so he cast me in this really cool role that um, changed my life. And so my first day at work, I, as you can imagine, I walked in not knowing what I was doing. I'd never been on a film set. I go to hair and makeup and there I'm watching Heath Ledger get the Joker makeup applied sitting next to Christian Bale while they're talking about something. And next to him was Gary Oldman. And next to him was Aaron Eckhart. And then me, and then on the other side of me was (laughs) Paul and then uh, Nestor Carbonell. And I was like, I haven't stopped floating since, to be honest, like that, that, yeah. that was a, a moment that affirmed so much for me and also um, was just life changing, obviously. Right. That was I my remember- first time seeing you on screen, obviously. But I remember around that time or shortly thereafter, I worked with a guy that looked exactly like you. So, of course, I'm associating looking like you with being the character from The Dark Knight. And it was just really unsettling. The whole thing. <laughs> fuck what is this guy up to you know uh and and the other thing i wanted to point out is that uh perhaps my favorite working filmmaker is denny villeneuve and you've worked with him three times that's fucking crazy you worked on with prisoners blade runner 2049 and now dune i just wanted to say that fucking rules and i love that guy yeah he's uh, he's the the kubrick slash fill in the blank of our generation. He's uh, one of the most important artists in cinema. He's incredibly passionate about cinema and he's a, just a beautiful, great human being. And um, being in his presence is a gift. I've been given so many gifts as somebody that loves film and getting to work in film, but like Denis is, um, he's truly a, a, a great friend and he, um, and I just love being around him when he works because um it's it's other it's otherworldly. It's really it's really wild, man. He's a, a very special human being, and I I don't know what I did right. I auditioned for the role of prisoners by tape 
I never met him in person. When I finally did meet him in person after I got the job and flew to Atlanta, I called him Dennis for a freaking week and no one would correct me because he's so polite. He wouldn't even tell me that I was saying his name wrong. And we just bonded. And I'm, I'm so grateful. And I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I cannot wait for everyone to see Dune. Speaking of Dune, the film and book that we're going to be discussing today, there are connections. Um, but I, I can't wait. I can't wait. So this is usually the point in the show where we ask our guests about their Stephen King origin story. When was the first time you heard of King? I assume you're a fan or maybe you're uh, just a fan of Graveyard Shift. I don't know. <laughs> Did I say I was a fan? I guess I, I mean, yes, fan is such an interesting term of Graveyard Shift. It's such a complicated uh, relationship I have with that whole thing. But I am v- undoubtedly a huge Stephen King fan. Uh, he's had a major impact on my life as a reader and as a story consumer. Um, but interestingly, and I think ironically, considering the fact that I'm a monster kid, a horror hound, and somebody who you know lives, dies, and breathes on on horror, my introduction to Stephen King, believe it or not, was Stand by Me. I was in the fifth grade. That movie came out. At that point, I had been familiarized with properties of his, like Creep Show, Cujo, Carrie. All had come out, and it had a big effect on you know, the world, but I raised in a very evangelical kind of household was not allowed to see. And Stephen King was like kiss in my house. Like my, my mom, (laughs) Stephen King, kiss dungeons and dragons, Fangoria magazine, all were like very forbidden, which is why, as you can imagine, once I got hooked, everything ended up like most kids kept porn and pot under their beds. I kept, Stephen King, Fangoria, and um, Dungeons and Dragons, and Rock. I, I like, I love Kiss. I can't say I didn't love Kiss, but it was then it was like Ozzy Osbourne was so wrong. I loved it. So, 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 Stand by Me comes out. My friend uh, Chris Hamilton and I were in fifth grade, and we used to hike this creek by our house in Kansas all the time and go looking for you know crazy things. And we never found a dead body, but we found some weird stuff out there. So I saw that film which led me to go get the book. And I don't think my mom realized it was a Stephen King book or she didn't really know what it was about. She was just impressed that I was reading big, thick novels. And then I would go to a place called Rainy Day Books in Kansas. And um, they had a special collector's edition print thing of Creepshow, which I snuck. Um, and that was just uh, like a comic thing that went. That was an accompaniment to the movie. Mm-hmm. And then I started just consuming everything. But my gateway drug was Stand By Me. Yeah, that was a big movie for, I think, a lot of kids in the in the 80s. Because it was like, you know, Goonies is one thing. Monster Squad's one thing. Uh, but, like, that was like an adult kids movie. You know what I mean? It was kids protagonist dealing with real shit that kids can relate to. Yes. You know, and there was cursing. And, you know, yeah. they were smoking. and Smoking. Oh, my right. God. I thought yeah. smoking was so cool. <laughs> and I just, this... I've, 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 I was born as we all are, but I was born, I think, with an ex- <laughs> exceptional fear of, of death. And there was something about that story, and it came at my life at a really weird time when I was having major insomnia. I so I sat at the Blue Jacket pool reading Stephen King, and you know, Night Shift was very close on the heels of those. So I'm glad right. we're going to get to talk about a, a story that came from Night Shift today because Night Shift. Just based on the cover art, I snatched 
as soon as I could at rainy day books. And then, you know, I consumed everything as soon as I started figuring out ways to sneak books behind my mom's back. And, um, and it was a used bookstore too. So you could bring your, your book that you'd read already and trade it in. And, and yeah, it's been a lifelong, uh, love of his work and the film adaptations are all over the place as we know. And, um, I have a lifelong love affair with, with all the different versions of stuff. Cause if you know me, you know that one of my goals in life is to be a horror host. And if you're a horror host, then you're going to get to broadcast late night. Um, maybe not like cutting edge uh, award season qualifying films in the genre, uh, but other stuff too. And I, I always have felt like Graveyard Shift would be a perfect contemporary horror host screening film. Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it's very pulpy and what's his name? Stephen Mock, just his main accent alone, like sends it into the, the, okay, we're oh, going to have we, a fun are time. We going there? Are we, are we open in that? Are we ready to talk about Stephen Mock's dialogue? Oh, we're so... we're going to bounce all over the place and baby. So you do <laughs> like there, there is never a wrong time to talk about Stephen Mock's main accent. Guys. Um, I mean, <sighs> in bed, in bed would be the wrong time to talk about Stephen Mock's main accent. The, the, the things that I'll think about, especially when it comes to like film and horror that I'll bring up in bed and my wife is like, really, that's what you're thinking about right now. And you want to talk about where well, you can't let go of the fact that that, if whatever that puppet effect bothered you, um, but, <laughs> um, I have to say, um, here's my general overall statement on both. Um, I love the short story. I really love the short story in a way that is. I love putting audiences in the, as a storyteller and as an audience member, but I love when audiences are put in the driver's seat of a character, especially a troubled character, a character who is not making traditional choices or a character who does stuff that is against the grain and doesn't follow the kind of tropes that we're used to regardless of genre. And I think that one of the things that's so brilliant about the way that a lot of the stories in Night Shift play out and a lot of the, the, the protagonists of these stories, you're given their point of view and they do some despicable, really weird, creepy things. And yet you're in the driver's seat with them for the ride. And ultimately, of the many reasons why the film version is such a mess. And then, by the way, and I love I love a mess movie. I love like a bad, bad movie because I think there's a lot to be uh, enjoyed in a in a poorly I'll say it on the record, poorly made film. There's still a lot and it, these shouldn't be thrown away and they should still be enjoyed because there's so much entertainment value. But in the short story, you get this point of view of this guy who's pushed to this edge, this guy who isn't that much different than us, like kind of privileged. He's educated. He all of a sudden is stuck in this circumstance where he's in a working class, like really stressful environment. And he cracks and he decides to lead everyone into the belly of the beast in the film. <laughs> you just, I don't know what, what, who's where point of view we were going to be riding with. Cause God love Dave Andrews. And like, he does a great job with the hall character, but the way it was written was not, you know, he's going to now lead his boss into the feast, the way that it happens in the book. And that misses the whole point to me of the short story. Do you want to quickly like break down what this is in case some somebody listening oh, sure, 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 yeah. hasn't I read know, the I know. everyone listening just is 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 addicted to graveyard shift I'm sure everyone is just, <laughs> just hanging on on my every word because they all love this so much um no it's it's such a great short story in the in the in, in the compendium of king shorts called night shift 
which everybody should read if they haven't yet. There's a lot of great stories in there, including the seeds of some of his future works that I'm, you know, are really wonderful. Um, but he he tells the story of this guy named Paul, who is, I think, yes, am I right? Yes. Anyway, Paul, yes. the hero, who is. A college educated kind of drifter who's looking for uh, his place in the world and he gets a job at this strange um, factory where they're hiring people for really kind of grueling labor. It's like a textile mill, but underneath there are these layers of tunneling and uh, storage that have been derelict and uh, neglected for so long that they've become a hazard. And so the company was kind of warned, like, you got to clean this stuff out. And so they've They've added these um, bonus shifts for people to make extra money over a holiday weekend by cleaning out these shafts. And that sounded funny. And um, he and this collection of other kind of interesting blue collar figures and his boss, uh, who's this crooked, shady guy, um, they embark on this you know, supposed to be simple task of just cleaning out this this mess. And what they discover down there is kind of an evolved species of rodent that it really enjoys the taste of human flesh. Um, and in the story, we watch Hall's psyche unravel as he dig goes deeper into the layers of these underground, you know, uh, catacombs. And instead of being the hero that you would expect in a story like this and, you know, saving everybody leads his boss who he really hates and that he sees himself in his boss. I think that's one of the really interesting reflections in the stories he sees like, what would he become if he had that power? What could he be if he was that guy? And and he has all this weird self-loathing that I think is really interesting. And he he leads them, spoiler alert, right into being a buffet for a bunch of rats and these giant, awesome, freaking vampire, bat, rat, uh, evolved creatures that have been growing down in this these pits. So that's 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 kind of the story. Does that did I miss anything? No, no, that sounds about right. No, you got it. And it's yeah. it's also thereabouts the plot of the movie. They expand it a little uh, bit. The the thing of the movie, yes, yes. He's just a guy who's on a job and he does become much more of your traditional hero in the sense. And they also eliminated or traded out some characters in the film that I just didn't understand other than I get it. There were no compelling female characters in the short story. So in the film, they did add... Uh, some more interesting women characters. The problem in, I wish they would have added them instead of replacing others because like there's a character, Wisconsin is a guy in, in the story and he's this just really pathetic guy who's very scared, but he really looks to Hall for like his leadership and, and Hall just, you know, is so frustrated because I think he sees himself in Wisconsin too. And Wisconsin's this kind of like just pathetic, like follow the crowd kind of guy and so, you know, Hall despises him as much as he seems to despise his boss. Now, in the movie, they change that character into this really kind of badass woman who I love, Kelly Wolf, who has been in tons of stuff uh, over the over the decades. It's who you just always know is a great actor. And by the way, in the film, God love it. And I and I no offense, Ralph Singleton, if you're still living or if you ever see this, listen to this podcast. But like, it's so odd to see so many actors who I love so much deliver such terrible performances and it goes to show you that you just can't rely on your on your on your um talent how important the other stuff is because because i think that um 
Stephen Mock is amazing. I think Andrew Divoff is amazing. I think that Brad Dourif is an amazing. These are all some of my. These are great actors, right. and I think this film collectively presents us with some of all of their worst performances we've ever seen. Huh. You mentioned Brad Dourif. Uh, I very much want to talk about his character, the Exterminator, as he is listed. Uh, he is the Rat Hunter, and he totally brings the crazy in. And I think one of the liveliest performances in the movie, but they also, my, my recollection of the short story is that there isn't this character here, that this is there a, is something. No, there is no exterminator character. Right. And, so and, so yeah. this is a, a whole cloth invention for the film. And they just decided to say, you know what? Hey, listen, I love Jaws <laughs> as much as the next person, but they said, we need a Quint in this movie. And so they like down to, you know, they give him the whole, you know, he, he gets his own version of the USS Indianapolis speech, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. where he's tearful, he, like little tears streaming down his cheeks as he's, you know, regaling our lead, you know, who he's met for all of like five minutes, you know, at this point about this horrific Vietnam story about why he hates rats. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I don't know, like is as much I didn't grow up with this movie. This is this is one that I came to very late. Matter of fact, I didn't see it till after I started this podcast. So uh, for whatever reason, I just missed this film. Uh, I don't know why. Oh, this man. seems like it would have been a, a cable staple right when I was watching everything. It was. But I, it I just was, never saw it. Yeah, it was totally a cable staple, and and I loved it younger. And then it's one of those those experiences that the older I've gotten, the more I've like been like, God, I've grown to love it in a different way. I think I loved it, and then I hated it, and was embarrassed that I loved it, and now I'm at a place where like. I love it for its schlock value and for its, I mean, Ed Woodian kind of level of filmmaking at certain points. I mean, Brad Dourif's character, this invention of this exterminator, you're right. He's absolutely what they wanted. They wanted a Quint character for this film. The exterminator ain't no Quint. And there ain't nothing weirder than seeing the the way that they, you know, whatever it was that they did with his, um, he's one of my favorite. I mean, I really, I, I, I don't say that lightly, like Brad Dourif is somebody I have, I think he's delivered so many incredible performances and his, his body of work is so inspiring to me as, as a fellow character actor and as somebody who I've always made it my ambition to when I'm a part of a film you know, or play to kind of propel the other characters and other actors around me forward. And I think Brad Dourif achieves that on a really special level in everything he did. He did. But I will say in, um, in graveyard shift, they seem to have given him like a lot of jolt cola before every scene, or <laughs> um, I don't know what. And it's it, and it and that that speech. I wish that if anybody's listening or anybody knows, I meant to. I've always meant to like Google the authenticity of that legend that we all heard as kids about, like the Vietnam you know prison camp tortures with the rats and. Um, I always was like, was that something, there must be truth in that story, but that's one of those that this wasn't the only time I've heard that story recounted. Um, right. you know, and it's a really gross, terrifying story, but man, ugh. I just want to say, I love, I love Dorf in this movie. And also just to loop back around to what Eric was saying a moment ago about only recently seeing this. I, I didn't see this until very recently either. I don't know how I avoided it for so long. I don't remember consciously doing it, but uh, I, I kind of, en- I, I enjoyed it right out of the gate. It is very schlocky and it is a product of its time in in every conceivable way. 
but I had a lot of fun with it. It's yeah. it's it's fun trash, you know. Yeah, you know what would be fun, guys. <laughs> we should do a um, a viewing party at some point because for me, this is the kind of movie now that you watch and when you're reading the short story that it's based on, you're you go to a really dark. I I did at least, and I have, and I've read through Night Shift several times over the years, but like uh, I kind of go to a really dark place, just like you know you do in. Um, that, that one about the people on the beach that ended up going to become the stand later. Like those put you in a dark place. This is the movie that I would like to watch with a group of people where we're going to root for the rats and we're going to kind <laughs> of like look at them as the protagonists and we're going to have so much fun watching this movie because it's a very fun movie and I, I don't want it to get lost to the dustbin of time. I think people should – I just – I want to talk about like the things though that to me the big differences between the short story and the film and right. – I think the mise-en-scene in the, in the short story is, I mean, King's writing is so strong and the way he can describe things in just a few sentence, a few words, not even a few sentences, he can give you the, the feeling of, um, of place, um, in such a strong and personal way. And in the film, you definitely feel like you're, it, it would be like what one of those kind of cheesy sets that, that, you know, you'd go on to for a, a schlocky horror film. Um, <laughs> There isn't a consistency to the to the landscape of where they're going. It just seems like they just keep kind of somebody threw a bunch of stuff over in this area, and we're going to film over here for a minute. And um, and and I felt like that world, the environment, is another character in the book that I wish, if I was looking at it from a serious cinema point of view, I wish that the 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 environment was more uh, was differently fleshed out and and lit differently, and it, and the textures and everything would be different. But um. But, or it'd be more than just a location that it, uh, it would actually, yeah. Right. It feels like it's a stage. I think they shot it on a stage and they they dressed it, you know, with a lot of cool art department stuff. But it doesn't feel like, you know, I would want I would want to see like the descent version of this film. You know what I mean? Hmm. But I love this version for what it is. I also think looking at the rats as a as a as I love being on the side of the rats when I watch this movie, and you think about. There's so many weird shots that like some poor animal wrangler, they like, they could only get like three or four rats at a time to kind of like turn their noses back and forth. And you're just watching being like, oh my God, this is so weird. It does sort of put you on the rat side right off the bat because one of the first things you see is, you know, this guy just like throwing a rat into a, like a, a, what is this? A fucking pressing machine or like a, what is it called again? Yeah, Yeah, it's like a wool separator or something. Yeah. Yeah. Something that would chew up a rat real quick. And you're like, what the (laughs) fuck? Like, this is the way you choose to handle this? I might have, like, made loud noises and tried to shoo him out of the room first. (laughs) And in the story, you know, Hall chucks Pepsi cans at at the rats. But I imagined he was chucking full Pepsi cans. (laughs) Yeah, not not empties. For, For some reason in the movie, they chose to not only use empties, but to use this weird slingshot concept, which... I can only imagine that with some executive being like, guys, slingshots are really hot right now, and we're going to have to have <laughs> – right, right. we need a Quint character. We're going to get Brad Dourif in as the exterminator, and then we're going we're gonna to get a, we're gonna get empties with a, because we don't want the, the PETA people on us, and we're going right. to we're gonna use a slingshot. And that slingshot doesn't even – that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense. If you've ever used a fucking slingshot, you know like it needs – first of all, your projectile needs mass. That's usually why you use like, you know, a BB. ball bearings oh, or, yes. or a BB. Yeah, something something like that. If you were using it to actually, you know, cause damage, you would use something 
substantial, but you wouldn't use an empty can, which I'm looking at a slingshot and I'm thinking as soon as you pull that thing back and let it go, it's just going to get tangled in the fucking arms of the slingshot and just hit you in the face. It's so goddamn stupid. It makes no sense. It makes no well, sense. It, it almost, it, to me, it reads like they, they looked at the short story and somebody very early on in the process, like you said, misinterpreted that as being an empty soda can. Yeah. But then nobody caught it along. Nobody was going there like, hey, man, this is kind of weird. But I also think it, it might have been them. They Hall does not get the depth of what Stephen King does with the character. doesn't get to happen in the film. And granted, I still think that guy, you know, uh, Andrews, who, the, the performance is, it's really, one, that guy is such a great actor. And all these people are truthfully, if you've seen them in any of their other work, really great actors, including, and I think we need to talk about now, it's time to get there. Stephen Mock, who anybody, mm, yeah. if, if you're not familiar with the name and you're listening right now, please go Google him. You've seen him in, in so many things. He's a really fantastic actor who has a great range. For some reason, he decided it's New England or, or the director or somebody said to him, like, you're, we're going to do this New England accent. Well, um, they filmed it in Maine. They filmed it in Maine. Yes. You know, so and the and it's a Stephen King thing. So I think that yeah. probably just came with the territory. Yeah. Him dialing it up to 13 might have not been, you know, it's so weird. It's such a weird. And it, and also, if you start shooting and it's not working, I think you just go, oh, let's just throw, <laughs> let's just throw away that. Dial. Let's not triple and quadruple down on the thing. Let's just right. let it be what it is. My theory is that this came out shortly or this was in production shortly after Pet Cemetery came out. And mm-hmm. they're like. They're like, oh my god, Fred Gwynn is getting all this attention for his outrageous main accent. So why don't we do that in the next Stephen King? Right. I, I don't remember the name of the town that the the book is, the story is set in, but it's definitely it's adjacent to Castle Rock. I mean, it's in the world. Uh, it's definitely in, in right, the King, right. Kingiverse, and so I get that that's why he wanted to do it, or that's why they wanted to do it. But if you notice, none of the other actors, uh, maybe a couple of the local like. The, the 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 crew guys did but none of the other actors had that and it was just it's so odd and interesting and um i don't know i i love stephen mocked in this movie uh accent and all it's ridiculous but it it, <laughs> it plays into the general schlockiness of everything else that's happening on screen but i i gotta disagree with you on dave andrews who's playing the lead who is essentially playing the character as a black hole of charisma he has no personality, hardly, in the entire movie. And he's just like this blandly handsome guy, you know, with good hair. And they're like, well, you're going to be the lead, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's, no. it's weird to, it's weird to have, you know, uh, taken, you know, what is a, a ostensibly the action hero role of this story. And turn it loose on somebody like that. So I don't know if that was a budgetary concern. You know, but they also had $10 million to spend on this thing. Yeah. You know, I feel like you could have gotten. I, I actually agree with you. I, I think you said it. Uh, so thank you. But but because I <laughs> just go like as one fellow actor, you always fear like anybody listening uh, and for David Andrews listening and being like, well, fuck you guys. I'll I take really the hit for you, Dave. Don't worry um, about it. <laughs> but, it's, but I will say I do believe that every. Every actor from all the faces you recognize, like you'll anybody who hasn't seen this film, um, you can hate me for it, but I will recommend you rent it and it's and rent it with friends. I think the movie's a blast. I will say that I think that of all the performances of the actors that I that I know knew 
have come to know because I didn't know who they were when I was a kid, except for I recognized um, Dorif. But everyone else, I I think it's as oddly like where they all turned in their weirdest, schlockiest performances. And hey, it, it goes with the the tone of the film. You can you can definitely tell that they were kind of left hanging by the leadership on this because Dorf is just going, well, fuck it. I'm going to dial it up to, to 12. And yeah. Stephen Mock's like, well, if you're going to 12, I'm going to 13 motherfucker, you know? And then, and then everybody else is kind of sitting around, you know, just going, well, I'm just going to do my thing. You know, maybe is this working? I don't know you get that feeling watching it. But what I will say is that just viewing this for the first time as somebody who loved this era of cinema and who like imprinted on it at a young age, this is what movies kind of look like and felt like to me. And I'll always have nostalgia for it. Visiting it now is a crazy time capsule because this is in like the, the last gasp before Jurassic Park changed everything. And, mm-hmm. and CG was, you know, it, suddenly anything genre would have, there wouldn't be you know mechanical rodents in this. It would be some terrible CG if this was made in '95. You right. know what I mean? Right. It's like, but we're still in the era of the of the obvious matte painting, you know, finale shot and some sketchy animatronics that kind of work, but you know sometimes and kind of don't. But when they do work, they look fucking great. You they know, look so awesome, dude. When it works, yeah. It's the 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 um the textures. Oh, it's so grody, like the fur and the teeth and the the gore of that stuff is really great. It's definitely a product that's not made by a committee, right? This is it is so scattershot and it's it's not like micromanaged to death, you know, in the mediocrity. You know, right. that that's that's what I'll give this movie is that it's 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 not boring. It has personality. It's not well made, but it it at least feels like some people were having fun making it. Agreed. And it and, has a uh, vision it, to it. Yeah. Yeah. And can we talk so, about what a brilliant, like one of the things that drew me back to it years later, because I'd forgotten about it was the key art. I think the key art was the, was one of the best things that they, they did in putting this film together. It like the, the poster is so awesome. And I remember seeing it on a wall at a video store, which is strange because it would have been in my teen years. So much later after I saw the film for the first time, but I remember it being on that poster being on this video shop that I would go to where they just had the whole walls covered in, in posters and being like, Oh, that looks awesome. And so renting it and being like, wait, I've seen this before. That poster has nothing to do with rats. (laughs) It's one of the better Stephen King posters though. Totally. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good. The way that the film, you know, finds it's, you know, uh, it it clunks to its ending and there's so many logic leaps and, you know, things when you get frustrated for anybody who watches, trust me, the rats really do have a lot of fun. And the rats, cousins, or I guess descendants, or great-grandparents, we haven't figured that out yet. Mutations? But their, their mutations um, have the most fun feasting. Um, and you're right. Like Sometimes watching it, it's it's right out of um, Plan 9. You can almost see the strings. And then other times when they angle the camera in a different way and light it differently, it's it's really rad. And I, I love that stuff. Like I said, I would love to be a horror host right now, hosting a show where I get to have you guys on as guests and we're going to sit and watch it together and talk through the film. I think that would be so fun. Let me ask you this. Are you afraid of rats? I, I think I have a healthy fear of rats. When I was living in New York and there was just be these armies of rats running down the sidewalk sometimes, especially when I was hanging out in the East village with my friends, like at night, 
I was this, the highest wheeled scream. I was like definitely <laughs> running. And one time I was <laughs> with my, this girl I was dating in Chicago in the middle of winter and she lived above this bar and um, they left their dumpster, you know, always was climbing with rats. But um, we were in bed one night, you guys, and asleep. And I felt something scurry across my chest and it was the biggest rat. Nope, and nope, I, yes, nope. Listen, listen, listen. I jumped out of the bed squealing. And when I came down and landed on the floor, of all the space on the floor, that rat and my foot, I had to land at the exact moment. And the the scream that can come out of a rat is so (laughs) terrifying. So yes, I, I, I don't love the rodents. Tangentially related to this. I was staying the night at a girlfriend's place once, and she had a cat. Very aggressive. So we're dead asleep. This is like the middle of the night. And uh, I was having a nightmare about uh, the um, the chestburster from Alien yes. stalking me around some area, you know, like the, you know, what the chestburster looks like yeah. and it hisses and it moves very suddenly. Anyway, so I'm in the mid- midst of this nightmare and I start coming out of it and feeling something sitting on my chest. And when I wake up, <laughs> I'm like, I'm looking through the dark, you know, it's lit through a a fucking blinded window. So there's a little light in there. But what I just see is this, you know, arm like sort of thing on my chest, like (sighs) right in my face. I flipped the, I grabbed that cat and threw it across the room and it hit a mirror and bounced off of it and ran out of the room. My My girlfriend's like, what the fuck did you just throw my cat? And I'm like, listen, you got to (laughs) understand. I love animals, but I was dreaming about. Yeah, I thought it was a chestburster. She's like, "What?" <laughs> you know, crazy. yeah, that'll that'll rattle you. But in terms of being afraid of rats, rats do not make my list of little creatures to be scared of. I imagine that might be different had I lived in New York. Is it that they carry disease? Is that what's scary about them? I think so. It's the tails, honestly, because like I've I've had uh, raccoons are much more dangerous than than rats, and I've mm-hmm. had a raccoon like just going buck wild in the attic, and I've been much less afraid, even though I should have been because raccoons can really fuck you up, and a rat is never <laughs> gonna unless you had a massive rat, so like getting a bite by one would suck. But like I think it's the tail aesthetically, fleshy tails, no no good. Something no that's weird about that. But I grew up. I actually grew up in. Kansas and then moved I was I only lived in New York for one year but when I was in Kansas it was um and it still is to this day uh a, a little bit of arachnophobia we had we had more of a problem with spiders and snakes than we did with rats um and like you know everyone had a cat so if you ever had a rat or a mouse around the cat just took care of it you know yeah how about mice I my first pet that's not true. My second pet was a pet mouse named Peanut Butter. Uh, I loved Peanut Butter. Uh, she was a very good little mouse. She would sit in my hand. But if there's one loose in my house, I'm not like great with it. You know what I mean? Like I don't like the idea of like a mouse like going into my pantry and like checking out my Cheerios. So I, uh, I'm looking at a mouse trap right now. You guys, we're going through all this box of throwaway stuff. I have these ethical, you know, like the Tomcat live mouse catchers, where you then take it out to the woods and let it go. Um, right. but I, I'd much, obviously much rather be face to face with a mouse than a freaking rat. <laughs> I've always kind of equated one to the other. It's a small four legged thing. They look similar, but rats are much bigger, but I think you're onto something with this fleshy tail business. My wife and I live out in the sticks on the outside of Austin. 
And uh, there's all kinds of creatures and fucking weird shit running around out here. One day, my dogs were going absolutely batshit, like uh, out in the living room. And I come out of my office and I, I go look and I don't see anything in the backyard, but then I let them out. And they immediately run over to one end of the fence and they're just like losing their mind. I step outside and what I see is a possum on the edge of the fence. And I I shit you not, guys. This thing is like, it's got to be fucking a foot and a half in length. And it had this huge tail like looping down around the fence. And it looked looked like clammy. It was like flesh colored, but also had hair. And it was like just kind of pulsating in the sun. And I was like, uh, what I did was I very courageously and with great bravery ran back inside and then watched it through the blinds <laughs> to see what it would do. And it just kind of sat there. So eventually I, I went back out there to get a picture of it to send to my wife. And uh, I go out and um, it's got its head down on the other side of the fence, you know, because it's it's on the the top ridge of the fence, right? So the top half of its body is kind of hanging down in our neighbor's yard. And as I get closer, it fucking flops its head over onto my side of the yard, looked me dead in the eyes. And again, it was like, <sighs> and once again, ran straight back into the house. Um, there might have been some shrieking, which yeah. was also very courageous. I will point out <laughs> I was serving as a human alarm for anyone else in the area. But the tail is what really set me off. In that moment, I would have done anything not to be anywhere near that tail. Yeah, fleshy. Like it just it's yes. rep- reptilian. There's something just alien about it. And I, I've had a number of, of possible Cronenbergian Yes, very Cronenbergian. And I believe that we could craft a great – there has yet to be the the, the horror classic uh, about the possums. And I think we need to do it. Um, when my, <laughs> and it's called Tales. <laughs> you just – there it is. No, anybody out there listening, don't even try it. We've already uh, bought the trademark. We've already copywritten it. So <laughs> – Suck it's a it. Disney um, Plus series coming down the way. I Couple when my son first my we brought, first brought my son home from the hospital. We were living in an apartment in Koreatown, and we knew that there were possums around sometimes. And yeah, they're creepy, like hissy, beady eyed teeth thing can be the they're worst. Mean. But but yeah. my son was we our bedroom. We had a little back patio, and on the first floor. And one day, these this mama possum was crossing a telephone wire that went over our porch, and two baby possum that were on her back fell down into our backyard and then they crawled their way up to our back door and my wife being me i'm like oh nature sucks that's too bad we'll just keep the doors locked and then you know blah 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 and she's like no are you kidding she she gets like the gardening gloves and she's like i was like you can't go you don't you don't and i was the very brave one yes that was like (laughs) hiding back like what are you doing so she (laughs) totally like scooped them up into a box i had to like try and transport them i'm paranoid that mama possum's gonna just come and rip my ear off at any second because she was up in the tree just watching and hissing and like fucking a man my my wife and her good heart and her like it's gonna come blasting through the fence like yeah fucking with my kids (laughs) but i think we saved i think we saved and ironically we had a book that we just gotten and now my daughter loves it called possum come a knocking so we were reading (laughs) that and i was like i'll be damned propaganda Right. Yeah, I've seen Saving Private Ryan. You just saved that that possum. Now it's going to come back and and uh, yeah, and <laughs> stab you in the in, in the chest really slowly. <laughs> um, so you said something at the beginning of this that was very intriguing, and in that you have been immersed in the world of Dune for a while, and that you drew some parallels 
between. Oh, oh mm-hmm. I, yes. I meant to this bring movie? that up when we were talking about actors. Well, I think it's important to note that a really phenomenal and one of his many standout performances from Brad Dourif is that of Peter DeVries right. in Dune, yes, David Lynch's yes. film. It goes to show, like you say, if it's your captain, if it's your director, if it's the screenplay, if it's the tone of the film that's being made, but like just the the, the juxtaposition of the exterminator next to Peter DeVries, and those are two totally different. You don't recognize those guys other than maybe some of Dourif's you know distinct facial features. Like that is just a completely other individual, and um, and I thought it was interesting when I was preparing to talk to you guys and going back and kind of I like re IMDB it and looked up the movie and I'm thinking about Dourif and his relationship to me as a fan and over the years and all the different things that I have, um, you know, been really drawn to that he has done as a, as an actor. Um, it was funny that we, we, we chose this and, and yet you're right. He brings like such a life and something in my, I mean, it's just bonkers and off the wall and bizarre to the, to the film in this. And then he, um, he played Piter in, in Dune and when Denis uh, invited me to be a part of, of his film Dune and told me the role I was going to play, I was immediately intimidated for a, a lot of reasons, very excited, obviously like over the moon, grateful and like freaking out with joy. But I was also very intimidated because um, stepping into a role that had been inhabited by someone as just incredible as, as Brad Dourif was, was really scary for me but also i ref- i did i've i've not gone back and watched what he did i had i hadn't seen david lynch's dune since probably i think i watched it maybe 10 10 years ago or maybe not that long ago but i had watched it but but i haven't watched it since i got cast in the film because i just i knew i needed to 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 create the, the piter that denis needed for his film and that i needed you know that was in my instincts um and and trying to figure out what was different from Mr. Dorff's like interpretation. And um, I did go back though, to the book, which I, I love, I love that book. It's, it's, if, it, if it's classified as genre, which it is, since it's a science fiction novel, I think it's one of the greatest pieces of genre fiction ever penned. And it's definitely um, one of the greatest works of science fiction, if not just literature of the last 40 years, I think it's just, it's such a powerful and amazing book. And I think all the clues that I needed for my Piter were there in those pages and then in Denise's script. But that's a tan- long tangent of just saying, as as I knew we were preparing to talk about this, I, I, I felt like I really wanted to like address the interesting connection and how I look at someone like Brad Dourif and his performance in everything from, you know, Graveyard Shift to Dune and all the other incredible things that he's done in, in his life. And I, and I hope that I, uh, it inspires me. Cause I think about like being, I love the idea of being in like some B horror. Um, and I've done B horror, but like being in B horror and like really, um, going for it and not having to be self-aware the way I think sometimes actors that take themselves seriously in a way that's unbeneficial. I think you should always take the work seriously because it's, it's a very silly job that we have to take seriously to do a good job at it. But I think there's a difference between that and like nodding to the fact that like you're in something that is rats eating people and you're not going to like go whole hog. And I think 
Duraf always just goes all the way in. And that's that's the kind of actor I want to be. You know, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it's a way more interesting answer than what I expected, because when you initially brought this up, I thought Denny had just added a rat scene to (laughs) Dune. I wish I could tell you the stuff that he is doing with that film. Sand rats. Oh, man. My kids, uh, we've seen the trailer. I'm sure you've seen the trailer. We've all seen the trailer now. And and my kids are obsessed with sandworms now. They just, they're so (laughs) like curious about the science of sandworms and they, and they believe that they're a real animal that lives out somewhere in, you know, in the world. And I'm not going to tell them differently for the time being. So, uh, show them Beetlejuice really fuck them up. Beetlejuice and, and, and tremors of course. Um, yes. Right. The long history of the sandworm and <laughs> in genre fiction. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of Lynch, you feel like a guy that would fit very easily into any David Lynch project. Have you well, ever auditioned you. for him? I I worked with David Lynch on Twin Peaks The Return. When I moved You're in the Return? What the fuck? <laughs> when I moved to Los Angeles, you guys, and this again, if anyone's listening and you're like, uh, my dreams, it's no hope. I moved to Los Angeles. I had done the Dark Knight, but I still couldn't get an agent or manager in LA. So I moved to LA without an agent or manager. And by the way, I haven't had an agent or manager for the past like four years. So that's not a deal breaker if you're out there trying to to get your yourself going as an actor or writer or whatever. But I I had this credit in The Dark Knight, so I thought that was going to help me, but I still had to submit myself for everything I could. And my goals when I moved to LA, I had three major goals, which were work with the Muppets. I mean, I should say I have hundreds of goals, but like my three like big life acting goals were work with the Muppets, be a James Bond villain, and work with David Lynch. Those were the three like career life goals that I had set for myself when I moved to LA. So I would submit myself to everything on those. You'd pay 25 bucks a month or whatever to be able to have access to submit yourself to music videos and short films and student films. And and I submitted myself for this student film that was being cast by a woman named Krista Huzar, who I had researched and realized that she works for Joanna Ray very often. And Joanna, I knew, was the kind of lifelong collaborative casting director for David Lynch. So I figured I'm going to go do my best for this woman. Hopefully she'll put in a good word for me someday. So I did. I worked really hard on this short film that wasn't paying anything and I didn't even get cast in, but I tried my best on the audition. And years later, I got summoned to an interview for what was being called at the time Rancha Rosa, which turned out to be uh, Twin Peaks: The Return, and when oh I met God, you're the fucking pit boss. When I met Joanna Ray, I said, "She said, do you know why you're here?" And I said, "Is this Twin Peaks?" And she said, "Yeah, but do you know why you're here?" I said, "No." And she said, "That woman over there, Krista Huzar, was actually there in the room, and she had just remembered me and brought me in." And David luckily thought I fit for pit boss Warwick and he cast me and I got to do like three episodes with him. We shot out at the Morongo. I got to live in a casino for a minute, uh, in the hotel and, and he's, he's, he's a great hero of mine. So, um, that was yet another one of those, like they could talk about the dark night moment, those moments when, you know, you find out you're going to be in the suicide squad or you find out, you know, you get to be a part of Dune or, for me also like getting that call that I was going to be a part of David Lynch's vision for Twin Peaks was like, I, I cried. I really did. I was, I was doing a play in Chicago for like a, an, a short term event with, and, and, and I was in the a cab with my wife when I got that call and I just cried. I was so happy. Well, I have uh, embarrassed myself on this show more than once. 
Oh shit. But I am it. fucking I am humiliated to have Come not made on. the connection. That's, no, I, I mean, no, it's not a it, big part. That's not like that would be. It would be different if I was like, well, I was the lead of the uh, Inland Empire. You don't remember? No, I mean, Pit, Pit Boss Warwick is a wonderful role, but he's literally in like a couple of scenes in a couple of episodes. So that is a very. I don't think most people, when I tell them, even people like yourself who are film, I'm a huge. Well, I'm a huge Lynch slash Twin Peaks guy. Yeah, you know, I just. Uh, and that's God not a role it. that I typically play. I mean, Pit Boss Warwick was a very straight edge kind of like he's, that's he's not true. like this yeah. character that like that that, that stand. That wasn't my job. I think to, I would have loved to have also gotten to do something really <laughs> maybe more dark or weird or whatever. But um, that's by no means a, a gaffe on your part. I don't think that I, I don't think a lot of people know I was a part of that. And but I do, and I damn well be sure that if I framed and hung any posters in my house from projects I've been a part of, I've hung every. <laughs> Man, I uh, that was that was one of the we're like way off topic here, but fuck it. Isn't that what this is for, right? This is springboard. It really is. Graveyard shift was the springboard. We've gone all over the place from rodents to you name it. Yeah, yeah. We'll get back to the rats in a minute. Uh, But Twin Peaks, the return, the the summer that came out was that was like the last great summer I remember. You know where everyone I knew was watching that shit. We had a huge we had a huge party at my house for the uh, premiere. Everyone had to bring a pie, and we ended up with like fucking thirty pies in the house. It was <laughs> insane. Um, awesome. I went out and got marble like Roman columns and and statue heads, and and dressed up an area of the house like the red room. It was fucking awesome. Oh. And I remember watching that show week to week and just speculating. The speculation was always wrong because you can't get inside the mind of fucking David Lynch, you know, but. It it reminded me of the the community that there was around Lost. Please don't tell me you were in Lost. Um, no, and I was not in Lost. I, I just Lost. okay. Whew. You rarely get to experience something like that anymore. I have not rewatched the whole series in full since that summer. I returned to episode eight a lot, which I think is perhaps the greatest episode of television ever aired. But I haven't sat down and done a, a full rewatch. And now that we're now that we're talking about it, it might be about yeah, time. Yeah, I think it's time for me to go back and rewatch too because I've only watched the series of the Return through once. But I will say that um, to me, it was it was a, a master class in both cinematic storytelling, character development, untraditional plotting in a way that we as audiences have become so conditioned to the new form of streaming consumption that what he did on so many levels felt really like important and for lack of a better term or not to be pretentious, but there was something about it that was like, he went as far as I think, you know, his imagination, he wanted to go and being true to himself. And he made the kind of series that like, it was a really difficult show to, if you missed a couple of episodes and then you tried to watch like two or three back to back, your brain would go into a kind of overload. It wasn't like um, popcorn. <laughs> yeah, you could just yeah, sit there yeah. and start going, well, and that was a lot of people's complaints. Like, well, it's just so cerebral or it's so this or that. And, and the people who gave themselves over to it and just went for the ride were so blessed with, I think, just an incredible out-of-body experience. I, I, I can't believe I got to be a tiny part of um, of that manifestation. And, 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 you know, it's a really funny, quick story. Um, I know we're kind of reaching the end of our time, but I, I just, I love this story so much. So we were shooting at the Morongo and it was the 
and I shot like a day or two in January, but then I didn't go back to shoot with them until basically the very last day of production. They had been shooting the series for a year. You know, they shoot everything out of order. So we're shooting some scenes from episodes like three and four, but it's their last day of filming. Principal photography was done that day. So my scene of me running Kyle McLaughlin down, you know, ch- you know, when I'm chasing him as he's wandering out of the casino in a daze as Dougie, I chase him down and go, sir, sir, you need to come with me and I'm going to take him up to my boss's office. Well, that was the last shot of the series that they had to get in the can. No shit. So we shoot that. And then, and you could feel all the excitement building because everyone, this family, these people are a family. David Lynch surrounds himself with his best friends and family when he makes his stuff. So these people are, have been on a journey with him for a year. Yeah. And they yell cut at the last take. And then it's this huge celebration and there's this big circle of picture wrap uh, speeches and everything. And I was so honored because I'm standing right <laughs> in the middle of it but i also felt like such a noob because i'm like people are like who is this guy and like this is this huge moment for them as a company and i got to just be like right there with them as they ended there and there's champagne you know it was a big moment for them and i was so grateful i got to be but i was a little embarrassed trying to like duck back into the crowd because i was like i shouldn't be the one standing right here next to kyle and david and everybody else that's fucking awesome what a life experience. Yeah, man. So crazy. Do we have any final thoughts on uh, what movie were we talking Graveyard about? Graveyard shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm all on. I'm on Twin Peaks time now. Do we have any final thoughts? Eric, uh, you got anything you, you'd like to cover that we didn't already cover? The only thing that I'd like to say is that we've touched on this as like a good B movie, right? I think it's fascinating just as a Stephen King fan because especially from Night Shift, almost every story in Night Shift is from his Titty Magazine stories. It's compiling all the stuff he wrote before he was famous and they were selling it, you know, 200 bucks a pop to Cavalier and whatnot. And those are like, by and large, the weirdest, horniest, or just odd stories. And Mm -hmm. so they also tend to make, uh, even though we, we can all agree that the adaptation like isn't, Uh, top quality it's still coming off of that kind of version of stephen king as a writer you know that's still the the uh, bedrock of of this thing and and some of that translates and and uh so i think i just want to reiterate that we might clown on a lot of what happens in graveyard shift but at the end of the day it's a fun watch it's a fun it's a fun movie i highly recommend it actually given the other king content that was coming out around that time like specifically some of the miniseries you know i'm thinking Tommy Knockers, I'm thinking Langoliers. This was kind of their play to replicate the success of Pet Cemetery. It didn't quite work. It's just not as universal a story, I don't think. But uh, I do think it's a lot of fun. And and I agree. Like, uh, while we make take some shots at its expense, I, I would encourage our listeners to watch it if they have not already seen it. I, I would like to chime in and say, absolutely. If you've not seen the film or if it's been a long time since you've seen the film, I hope you will rent, especially again with your friends, do a viewing party. We'll get it. I'll do it. We could do a, a Twitter watch party at some point, you guys listening. <laughs> I want to do this. Uh, and to Ralph Singleton out there, sadly, this was Ralph's uh, only feature film directing venture. Uh, he had a successful career as a director in other mediums and, um, if you ever do listen to this, know that yeah, we we there's there's a lot of of, of jokes that I've made, but you gave me uh, 
a great deal of entertainment and it's it's one that I will uh, be entertained by again and um, so I, I do think everyone should get a chance to rent it and I again I want to I want to dress up in full horror host um, regalia and um, and get to introduce this with you guys so and thank you guys for letting me talk about it I, I really think there's so much interesting um, discussion to be had when you look at film adaptation you know we could do that for for the rest of our lives talking about adaptations of of novels and short stories into film and cinema and i think um it's just a really interesting conversation this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tease whatever they have coming up on the horizon (gasps) but i'm just gonna cut through the bullshit and get down to the (laughs) nitty-gritty tell us all the spoilers about the suicide squad please so basically uh at the very end (laughs) of the suicide squad what happens is um Brad Dourif comes barreling out as the exterminator. <laughs> this was a deep, you deep, deep plant. James has been waiting his whole career. No, um, the Suicide Squad, you guys, is coming so soon. I can't wait for everybody to see it. It's uh, James Gunn in you know all of his glory. He is, uh, abs- as we all know, one of the most talented directors and writers in film, and he's also one of the best people I've ever known. And getting to tell this story with no um with no gloves on is is been a sight to behold it's a really fun ride and and i haven't seen the film yet but i can tell you just from my experience being on set what a um and what what little bits i got to be privy to that it's it's going to be something really special and then dune comes soon after that in the fall and i can't wait for everyone to see that and then you know, as Eric mentioned at the top of the show, if you get a chance, uh, Count Crowley, Reluctant Midnight Monster Hunter is available in trade paperback form right now from Dark Horse Comics. You just Google Count Crowley and you can figure out where to get it. And I can't wait till we're back to in-person gatherings because I'm going to go to every comic shop in the United States, every every convention and um, dress up as a horror host and sign your copies of Count Crowley and bring a copy of Night Shift and I'll find the pages with Graveyard Shift in there and, and I'll, <laughs> I'll take notes on there for my favorite lines. Or bring him a rat tail. To, to no, don't some. do that. No, 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 no. Or a possum tail, you know, one of the, one of those two. But thank you so much for being here today. Uh, David, this was fantastic. Uh, we'd love to talk to you again. Thanks. Um, thanks. And can I also give? I have one nothing last further to out? add to that, man. This is great. Sure. Can I? Yeah. Sure. Re- one last re- rest in peace, Yafet Koto. Since you were talking about the the chess busters earlier, yes. I think that um, his involvement in the, that sequence is cinema history, as so many other things. And we just he just passed away. Yet in the last twenty four hours, and obviously, when you guys are listening to this, that will be old news. But I just wanted to um, to say. Thank you, Yafet, wherever you are, for all the amazing work that you did. The the blue collar heart of, oh, of Alien, right. which oh, is man. which is honestly saying something, you know. Yeah. Uh, and Midnight Run, don't forget Midnight Run. Yeah, <laughs> Midnight Run, Midnight so Run. He's yeah. a great Bond villain. Yeah. Well, thanks, you guys. This has been a real treat. All right, many thanks to David Desmulchin for coming in, talking about some giant rats with us, and just being an overall sweetheart of a guy. We love that that David Desmulchin. Total sweetheart. Oh, can't get enough of that desk motion. And, and I finally uh, figured out how to say his name without like oh, saying it in my head first. Yeah, you 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 uh, focus on the mal part and you dismalchin for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of of names, like I uh, I also got clarification from our buddy Steve Agee, who was our guest last week on Idris Elba's name. So many people go Idris, Idris, whatever. It is just Idris that he's like, that's what his wife calls him. So so from here on out, if you ever have a question about how to pronounce Idris Elba's name, 
It is Idris. Idris. It all ties into the Suicide Squad family. But as you can tell, you know, uh, our episode with David was recorded a little while ago. We had that Yafet Koto mention there at the end. So forgive any lingering historical, you know, the world has moved on <laughs> moments that, that might uh, exist in that episode that was recorded. Jeez, when was that? Like January, February? It was recorded a while ago. What Vespi's trying to tell you, folks, is that you've been hoodwinked. We didn't just record this episode. We recorded it a while back, and this was all part of the master plan. The magic gonna, of podcasts. We're going we're gonna to throw those curveballs at you from time to time. We've got an interview coming in a few weeks that was recorded during the mid-90s, and we're just now yep. getting around to posting it. So, you know, that yeah, my voice is a, breaking in it. It's, it's, it's really fun. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, the lead singer of Sugar Ray has a lot of exciting things to talk about on that episode, and um, we think you're going to like it. It is also worth noting that we have to give an extra special thanks to Dave for... Uh, helping us kind of organize this uh, whole Suicide Squad thing because of his yes. enthusiasm for recording uh, his episode. Like he was just super on board. He's like, yeah, it's like you, we already knew Steve AG, but he's just like, how about Flula? Let's see if Flula's interested. And so the reason why we were able to do what we did is because Dave is the best and is a fan of the show and, you know, just super supportive of us personally and just had a blast when he was on. As you could tell, if you just listened to that episode, we couldn't have done the last few weeks without him. So many thanks to, to David. For totally, that. totally. Give him a follow on Twitter. He's he's great on there. But that that does mark the end of our Suicide Squad run, which isn't to say we might not have further people associated with that movie on the show sometime in the future. But for now, that that little mini block of episodes is over. <laughs> and yep. next week, we have one that I am super, super, super excited about. Mm. Tell the people what they need to know, Eric. We are attacking probably my favorite later career King book. Uh, definitely my favorite later career King book and one that I think stands shoulder to shoulder with some of his best that he's ever done. And uh, it is one that has not been adapted yet, not for lack of trying as we'll get into next week. The title we are talking about next week is Revival. Yes. This is dark-ass Stephen King, cynical, mean. Uh, there's a reason why a lot of these adaptations Existentially horrifying. This is a really special episode. We go pretty long on it. Uh, we talk very specifically throughout about a lot of things in the book, and you can't talk about this book without talking about the ending. So spoilers, we do go into the ending, although we do try to keep that to the second half of the episode. And, you know, I, we just cover everything. We cover the book. We were also lucky enough to have read Mike Flanagan's script that uh, he was going to do for a hot minute and then uh, is not doing anymore. So we'll have some info in there on that. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, we also have a really great guest, an acclaimed filmmaker. I can say that much. And somebody who's you not might only say that Stephen other podcasts will be green with envy to not have him on the show next week. He will, they will be very green with envy. Mm. <laughs> Nobody will figure this out. But yeah, no, he's a, a really great guest, really smart guy. And he's also somebody who's tiptoed, I guess, around uh, doing his own Stephen King adaptations. And he talks a little bit with us about that as well. And wait till you find out <laughs> what King Project this person specifically pitched himself on to Stephen King. My jaw dropped when I heard what this person had been up to without my knowledge. <laughs> right. Very, <laughs> you know, not that he needs to. He didn't ask our me. permission first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not signing permission slips over here or anything. But uh, boy, was I excited to 
to hear about that. It is a jam-packed episode. Uh, as Eric noted, it will be running a little long. This is a supersized episode of the show, but consider it our definitive take on on Revival uh, while we're waiting on someone to work up the nerve to actually turn it into a movie. And by someone, we mean a studio, not Mike Flanagan, who would have been balls out to make this had they let him. And then mm-hmm. um, this Friday on the KingCast Patreon, we are hosting a guest by the name of Heather Buckley. Uh, she is a predominant voice in the horror community over the last however many years. And, you know, she she works as a producer now and has all kinds of her own horror related projects going on. We found ourselves in an interesting conversation with Heather not too long ago, wherein she pointed out that of the X number of Stephen King adaptations out there, of which there are literally dozens, uh, very, very few are directed by women or adapted by women. And we thought that was a a pretty interesting statistic. So we brought her on the show to talk about that, why that might be, who we'd like to see tackling various Stephen King properties. And uh, it's a pretty fun conversation. Uh, So tune in uh, to the Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash the KingCast this Friday to hear that. I think that's all I got. Yeah, that should do it. So come back next week for some revival talk. And this Friday on our Patreon, we will be joined by Heather Buckley to talk about uh, creative female filmmakers and the lack thereof within the Stephen King adaptation work. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.